0: Welcome to the Jurassic Park cast, the Jurassic Park podcast, where guests chat with me about Michael Crichton's 1990 novel, Jurassic Park, and also not that too. My name's Ryan Rogers, and I'm a big, dumb Jurassic Park fan. Welcome to episode 13, Chateau, Lucky 13. Recorded here on the most beautiful day of the year so far, May 11th, 2022. Thanks for joining me today. A continued thank you to Christoph Oakes of Snail, S-N-A-L-E. You can check out his incredible album on Spotify and Bandcamp. And today's intro song is Sleepyhead, and the outro is Adam Age Vampire Cat in the Brain. And I'll have to ask him what that second song's name means because that's a tricky one. Some corrections in the last episode I said I couldn't think of other quadrupedal carnivores or theropods and though it's as difficult to imagine four-legged theropods in as much as it's difficult to imagine four-legged birds of course there were plenty of quadrupedal carnivores. A list of carnivorous tetrapods from the Permian like Dimetrodon include amphibians including like 20 families of Temnospondylae which were horrifying crocodile-like frog crocs. That came before amphibians had figured out what the heck they were supposed to be doing. The uh had, like, these bizarre arrowhead-shaped skulls. The reptiliomorpha, uh, which were, of course, lizard-like things before lizards settled down into just being, like, lizards. Including reptile-like amphibians and stuff that kind of looked like reptiles. If reptiles were all crossed between, like, a giant bullfrog and a pit bull terrier, which, like... We don't need to see that. Uh, The sauropsidae, which are generally more lizard-like, though not necessarily small, and lived in the the desert and the ocean and everywhere in between and stuff that were developing more distinctively lizardy kind of skulls. And these animals would eventually evolve into the dinosaurs and birds that we love today. And the synapsidae, which includes pelicosaurs and therapsids. And the therapsids are where the mammals come from. And includes the dimetrodon that we were talking about. And there are are hordes of other stuff that, that range right from out of your dreams to right out of your nightmare. So yes, there were lots of quadrupedal carnivores. That doesn't make Metrodon unique, but that doesn't mean Demetrodon isn't super cool because it is. Also, I have believed my whole Jurassic Park-y life that Dr. Ellie Sattler's common name was Eleanor, but that's wrong. Crichton tells us Ellie Sattler's name is conclusively Ellen in The Lost World, Jurassic Park sequel. So not Eleanor. I was wrong about that. For the record, Ellie isn't a common nickname for Ellen. Wikipedia tells us it's usually a feminine name playing on the EL letters for names such as Eleanor, Elizabeth, and Elvira. And it's less common in usage for Elena and Michelle, Iliana, Eloise, Amelia, Elisa, and even Shelley, but not Ellen. But that doesn't make Crichton mistaken, just unconventional. Whereas, that does make me mistaken, even though I wasn't wildly off base. Ellie stands for Ellen. It just took Crichton a few more years to finally publish the rest of her backstory, like what her real name is. Dinosaur news. We have two new dinosaurs. Dinosaur one. The journal Nature published a new paper called A Large Megaraptoridae." a Day from Upper Cretaceous of Patagonia, Argentina, on April 26th. The paper described a partial skeleton of a Megaraptorid from the late Cretaceous, or Maastrichtian beds of Santa Cruz Province, Argentina. The paper says, quote, This new specimen is the most informative Megaraptoran known from the Maastrichtian age and is herein described as a new taxon. Data from its fossils have further informed the phylogenetic relationships between other Gondwanan or southern Megaraptorans, namely the South American Megaraptorans, Megaraptorans were a bit different than the Australian and Asian Megaraptorans. The animal was named MAPE macrothorax, where MAPE, M-A-I-P, refers to an evil entity from the Aeonicank mythology representing the shadow of death, which kills with cold wind, roaming the Andes Mountains. And macro is Latin for big, and thorax is Latin for wide thoracic cavity, Or together macrothorax means wide thoracic cavity. MAPE, the evil shadow of death with a wide thoracic cavity is the name altogether. The holotype MPM21545 is housed at the Museo Padre Molina and was uncovered from the Chirillo Formation. It's comprised of an axis, eight dorsal vertebrae, two caudal vertebrae, cervical ribs, dorsal ribs, gastralia, and a coracoid. And those fossils were entered into the fossil matrix machine, uh, or whatever they calculate these things with, twice, once with only the best fossil remains, and the second time with all the fossil remains, including the fragmentary data as well. And The analyses agreed that Megaraptorans were nested within Cerulosauria, forming a sister group of Tyrannosauroidea. With the new data from MAPE, a bunch of dinosaurs and family relationships have been adjusted, showing which animals are more closely related to which. Most distinctly, the analyses show that there were two distinct clades of South American megaraptorids. the first including Group A, the Megaraptor, and Murusraptor, and the second group, B, containing Orchoraptor, Tratayenia, Erostion, and the newly described MAPE. Primarily, the group features mesial denticles, separating them as more derived forms from the Megaraptoridae. The tibia's shape further excludes them from being related as closely to Australovenator, and the hand claws have a distinctive trait which separate the groups into A's and B's. Uh, a's don't have that trait, and the B's do. The paper says, interestingly, clade A includes most of the Cenomanian to Turonian Patagonian forms. Furthermore, all of these forms exceed six or seven meters in length. This supports conclusions by Lamanna et al., who hypothesized that megaraptorids underwent a trend towards body size increase during the Late Cretaceous. So, this clade A existed during a time frame from like 100.5 million years ago to 89.8 million years ago. That's about 11 million years in the early mid-Cretaceous. And clade B lived in a totally different time frame, the Santonian to the Maastrichtian, which is 86.3 million years ago to 66 million years ago, about a 20 million year span right up to the end-Cretaceous, separated by the Cenomanian Age, another 3 million years in between them. So the animals in clade A didn't cross paths with those in clade B, and most probably those in clade B, likely derived from the ancestors in clade A. The paper adds, clade B gathers Santonian through Maastrichtian megaraptorids from South America, which also constitute the largest known megaraptorids between 8 and 10 meters long. These new clades reinforce the proposal made by LaManna et al. that Patagonian megaraptorids diversified and increased their size during the Lake Cretaceous. This second clade contains mape, so it's reasonable to deduce that it was between 8 and 10 meters in length as well. And that's something like 30 feet long. Dinosaur 2, another article from the journal Nature on May 3rd, titled New Therizinosaurid Dinosaur from the Marine Osushanai Formation Provides Insight for Function and Evolution of Therizinosaur Claws and that reviewed a series of Japanese fossils that were described back in 2008. A specimen believed to be a therizinosaur was re-examined and named. It was named as a new taxon, Perala japonicus making it a unique species based on a unique combination of characters in the metacarpal and unguals. It becomes the youngest therizinosaur from Japan and the first recovered from the marine deposits in Asia, which suggests a long temporal existence in therizinosaurus at the eastern edge of the Asian continent and adaptation of therizinosaurus to coastal environments. Pyrallotherizinosaurus was a member of the therizinosauridae family, making it a bipedal large animal derived from carnivorous ancestors, though it had become a herbivore. It was likely feathered and had large hand claws and small heads, spanning in size from 7.2 to 33 feet long. They had long necks, wide torsos, and hind feet with four toes used for walking, resembling those from like basal sauropodomorphs. Though derived from the lizard hip theropods, their hip bones had become partially fused and moved to point backwards, so they actually resembled bird hips. They're most distinctively identified by their enormous hand claws, suggested to be used for grasping and shearing leafy branches, like perhaps a ground sloth might. Some skin impressions show these were covered in a coat of primitive, down-like feathers. They're found in the Late Cretaceous Boundary, spanning across the Laurasian continent, spanning up to 33 feet long, with a broad, round belly, supported by a wide and robust pelvis, with thick hind limbs, which had stout, four-toed feet. Their strong arms had enhanced hand flexibility, elongated hand claws, and a highly derived, nearly avian inner ear. The name Perala Japonicus, breaks down as follows. Peralos is Greek for near or by the sea. Therizo is Greek for reap. And Soros is Greek for lizard. And Japonicus refers to Japan. So this is the near sea reaping lizard from Japan. The holotype NMV-52, housed at the Nakagawa Museum of Natural History, was uncovered from the Osushinai formation. It's comprised of a partial vertebrae. A partial right hand, including metacarpal 1, proximal ends of the unguals 1 and 2, and a nearly complete ungual 3. And the unguals are like claws. When the data was put into the phylogenetic analysis machine, researchers found it is an unresolved clade of Therizinosauridae. So thanks a lot, phylogenetic analysis machine. <laughs> and that its claws most closely relate to Therizinosaurus, uh, which were slender and with weak flexor tubercles. Uh, the study also argued that there was an evolutionary trend in ungual shape associating a decrease in mechanical advantage, meaning they believe the hook and pull function of claws to bring vegetation to its mouth was what these animals were doing rather than perhaps digging with these claws. They just, I guess, didn't seem strong enough for that sort of thing. So with our corrections and dinosaur news out of the way, please, let me introduce you to my special guest this episode. Joining me today is an author and contributor for the Prehistoric Times magazine. His name is Phil Hoare. How are you doing, Phil?
1: I'm doing very well. How are you?
0: I'm very good, thanks. We met after the goddess Roma resurrected us along with a team of gifted youngsters who were sworn to protect a world that feared and hated us in the Australian Outback, where we faced off against Reavers, Marauders, and Morlocks until exiting through the Siege Perilous to return as you, a globetrotting champion of prehistoric science education, and me, a big dumb Jurassic Park podcaster. So thank you for being here with me today.
1: That's you're welcome. Like it's thank thank thankfully Gateway was there to fling his woman around his head so he can open up a gateway so he can get through. Yeah,
0: and he didn't talk too much, <laughs> was which is an X-Men
1: storyline that didn't last very long.
0: <laughs> yeah, so you mentioned you had worked, or do work, or have worked in a comic shop for a period of time. Which were some of your favorite books?
1: X-Men was definitely up there. Yeah. You know, I was a Marvel, Marvel nerd, so bizarrely, DC didn't sell well in Australia. Like, um, a lot of the news apps and things, like, we didn't really have that many comic shops when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. In fact, we had none. <laughs> um, so I was just off the news. Asians weren't that many DT. So it was all Marvel. Um, but yeah, like my favorites, Black Panther. I loved ROM Rom the space night. Okay. Um, I, I was getting that every day. Yeah. So, um, sad, I know, <laughs> uh, but yeah, definitely X-Men was one of those ones. And you know, yeah, we were so excited in Australia. There is no real Australian superhero, supervillain. So when the, when the X-Men brought in that Australia, line, we were all excited down here. Yeah, I was gonna ask, like and it the, didn't last very long. that period, that's like a really
0: important part of X-Men's lore. Was it did it uh, did it resonate in Australia
1: well? It did, but as I said, it didn't seem to last very long. And then yeah. like I don't know if you recall, but there was supposed to be a thing that when they went through the siege perilous, like they were now invisible to the technology and that's right. stuff like that. You know, they could yeah, what happened to that? <laughs>
0: It worked for a little bit. I remember um, they would like go into hospitals and like infiltrate a hospital and, and rescue someone from some advanced form of sentinel, and the and the doctors couldn't figure out who they were because they didn't show up on the EKGs and they didn't uh, show up on their security. And this, uh, I think, I think the sentinels had trouble scanning them. There's a couple of things where that played out, but you're right, it kind of faded away over time.
1: <laughs> I will say I do like the. I, I don't know when it happened, but they brought in that um, bishop yeah is actually he's actually original he's um he's gateway's grandson or something is that right from the future because remember bishop came from the future yeah so they actually i didn't even didn't even click until yeah i was reading something that went oh he's the grandson of a gateway. I'm like, oh my god, really? That's cool. Well, I haven't got that far in them yet, and I got pretty far. <laughs> that was just something recently I read. and I'm like, that oh, right? that's
0: interesting. Well, maybe they rebooted it a little. Hey, yeah. like, so that's a cool. Like, that was a really cool moment in you know in the book, and and certainly in uh, in Australia. Like, I'm in Canada. There was like one issue where I think Wolverine and a couple guys headed into Calgary, and they they fought something. I think it yep. was the Wendigo. I'm not sure. And then there was like a few skirmishes with Alpha Flight, but Canada didn't really get showcased like like Australia it was cool. That was a really important moment for the characters, and it was uh, it was like the
1: Reavers were awesome. Alpha Flight had so much potential, and uh, you know Sasquatch and uh, like oh it could have gone done so well, and it just never seemed to trigger. Like I, I was there reading it, going, come on, and <laughs> just didn't seem to go anywhere. Puck and, um yeah, i can't remember all their names but... uh, i'm just trying uh vindicator that was vindicator that the yeah. name of the anyway wasn't it the name of the head guy with a canadian flag on yeah i don't remember i might, I might be i might be misremembering something you anyway. remember no vindicator anyway, was a name comics.
0: i wish I, I didn't didn't
1: bone up on my alpha flight before i jumped on here <laughs> i've got one of those brains man i nothing nothing escapes everything's in there just to try and somehow screw it out mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> in fact one of the books I had released this year was about 1950s war on comic books. Right. Like the horror and crime comic books. And, you know, a lot was happening in Canada and Australia and uh, the UK. You know, we always hear about the work, Frederick Worth and stuff and and how um, psychiatrists were trying to ruin comics and everything in the 1950s and, you know, the kids were being, their, their behaviour was blamed on comic books. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, we always hear the American side of it where, you know, my books, they're still talking about that more to introduce what was happening but also what was happening in Canada what was happening what was happening in Italy like, there was some amazing stuff happening in Italy all around these comics so yeah, anyway yeah so just a little plug there <laughs> <laughs> well
0: i think what happened like maybe my favorite part of the of the outback sequence was that somehow jubilee winds up in australia she gets chased out of a mall in in california and winds up uh, gateway yep. must have been involved somehow and she winds up there and she ends up healing a crucified wolverine back to health, so that he could overpower the reavers and then they escape through the siege perilous into a future unknown i think that was just a maybe they didn't use the siege perilous then in any case that That's part right. were, that,
1: that was that purple mark
0: sylvestri cover if i remember correctly any that those those no, it, it, those I, moments where like a, a a youthful noob uh discovers a, a wounded and beaten speechless wolverine and then like the two of them, <laughs> it's like finding a stray dog, and the two of them manage to escape together. Those are always the neat storylines. when yeah. it, and uh, they did it a couple times, but that in the outback was just, just amazing. I thought it was a really cool
1: part. Uh yeah no that that whole period like um yeah no it was good fun. <laughs>
0: well, speaking of like weird exactly. times and uh, what a lot of fun. You mentioned that as well that Australia had a unique Australian experience with the release of Jurassic Park. In that you got all the hype. none of the movie for three months i looked it up it was september Uh, 2nd it came out that's incredible
1: yeah it was it was frustrating like um but also don't forget that there was the months before that because yes all the hype that was getting into the film before it was released in america we had to go through that as well so i'd say it's almost a year when it was first you know we first started getting you know stories how good this film was going to be Spielberg was directing it like um yes Uh, You know, photos were showing up in Starburst or whatever, uh, Starlog. Um, So, yeah, it felt like about a year to me that, you know, and then, of course, once the movie hit, we were getting, it was the 60 Minutes report on (laughs) Jurassic Park. There was all this stuff, and we were getting that at the same time you guys were, without the film. (laughs) Unbelievable. I can't imagine being
0: that frustrated.
1: (laughs) Uh, Like, it was especially for a dinosaur freak. But, um, yeah, I, as I said, like, um, I was at the first screening, which was at 7am on the first day that was released and it was packed. Like it was packed. <laughs> Unfortunately, we all had to go to work after that. <laughs> um, I was sitting there with my Walkman on listening to the soundtrack cause I had bought the soundtrack <laughs> <Sure>. the sound, <laughs> because the movie was so, so late coming out. The soundtrack was already out in the stores by the time. Like, I was set to lose. <laughs> no. When you get into it, and you have no- nothing but time to stew waiting for
0: it, you find all the little bits, and, and you... Yeah, it's that anticipation that really gets you into the
1: minutia, for sure. The nerds get into the minutia afterwards. And I think... <laughs> and I think maybe that's why I found that a lot of Jurassic Park book fans were a little bit disappointed in the movie, mm-hmm. because so much was missing. And... Yeah, so we, we were so hyped for it that when it finally hit, and I'm not saying that we didn't like the movie, yeah. but I, I I feel there was a bit of disappointment that there was so much that we were hoping to see happen, like our favourite bits from the book, but they weren't really there. Yeah, um, and subsequently over the next three films, all the bits from the first book are basically the Avery, the um, uh, the little girl getting attacked on the beach. Mm-hmm. Um, all, all these little beats in the book are spread out through in fact probably the next four films because uh um uh so yeah like and it also shows you what an impressive book that it took four movies to kind of fill up all this the storylines that they created in the in the book so absolutely yeah um yeah um but yeah so yeah I, I love the movie but yeah there was just that little tinge of disappointment that it was missing some of the the things that I think we were wanting to see.
0: Yeah, we're gonna to totally get to that. I have one more, I guess, like specific Australian question. Sure. I sorry. Don't know
1: sorry. Okay, s- yeah, go for it, go for it.
0: Okay, cool. So there is a Diamantinosaurus, and I don't know if I'm pronouncing it correctly. How how does one pronounce Diamantinosaurus?
1: Um, well, I think it's called like the, because it's such a strange name, I think it's called Matilda. That's the, so something like, uh,
0: they just call it Matilda, do they? Okay. <laughs>
1: Yeah, so um, like, there's a, uh, our our Australian poet is called Banjo Pat. Right. Um, uh, there, there's the Australian song "Waltzing Matilda." So Matilda. Yes. Um, uh, yeah. Dimatinosaurus, I do believe one of the big long uh, sauropods. We're talking about one of the titanosaurs, I, I think. Yeah. Uh, I do believe it was found with a theropod crushed underneath it. Like <laughs> somehow it had died and fallen on top of this predator, which is a smaller than Allosaurus called Australovinata. Nice. Uh, which is called Banjo. Right. So Banjo and Matilda, Banjo Patterson, the poet, and he wrote Waltzing Matilda, so Banjo and Matilda. Um, yeah, but, yes, there was a, 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 a theropod crushed underneath it, and I've, I actually did write a story in... Um, uh the prehistoric times about how that possibly happened <laughs> okay and what did you what so what how do how do you see it happening oh i see it happening that um uh like uh the uh the the theropod uh australovenator is a very, very it's almost like a raptor when you think of a raptor it's very graceful. it's very thin okay um but it's got massive clawed hands. Like it's got Wolverines. speaking of Wolverine. Okay. It's got Wolverine like claws on its hands. Yeah, it had really powerful hands. So I was thinking to kill a sauropod, you don't have one. You probably have a bunch of them. And yeah, so they're all basically trying to, you know, clamber up maybe cutting its neck or something and uh killed it and one of them was just stupid enough to get stuck underneath and so when the sauropod died and came collapsing down <laughs> this one thing got trapped underneath and got squished sure was well, there anything like my cat they get under your feet and you just trip on them and then maybe you get winded <laughs> <I don't know. laughs> that sounds about right well, yeah and that's one of the things that's one of the things i've always argued against like uh you see uh, there's a couple of documentaries where they had herds of sauropods walking around with their babies yeah i'm like that could not happen. Like that, literally, could not happen. <laughs> oh, I see. If what you your mean. head is t- is twenty feet away from your feet, yeah, and you've got little babies walking around, you cannot see what's underneath your feet. No. Oh my goodness, you're totally right. Like, there's right. just no way when you think, yeah, if you think your, your head's like twenty feet that way, and your back feet are another fifteen feet back behind your front feet. You can't see what you're stepping on. So I just couldn't, could never imagine that baby sauropods hang around the parents until they got to a certain size. It's so difficult to
0: imagine these completely alien animals. Like when you, when you, when you see that picturing of of them with the infants, you think of, you're thinking of like elephants and how they're, they're very, very good about, you know, rushing over to make sure the kids are okay and they, they take care of their calves really nicely and, and so you, you kind of substitute the elephant for, for an analog of the sauropod, but you're absolutely right. They're, they're completely built different. There's no way it would work.
1: No, elephants spend 18 months getting that one kid out (laughs) and they've only got one. Yes. So you are looking after that one kid as best as you can. And, you know, the whole, the whole kind of herd looks after that, that child. Mm -hmm. Um, Whereas sauropods, you, you know, we know that produce hundreds of eggs. So yeah, just yeah and even the um egg laying thing like they, they must have all laid their eggs at a, at some point and left because you can't imagine walking on, of yeah. sauropods walking through a huge nesting area because they're just going to step on every bloody nest yeah
0: and so like the last paper i read on on titanosaur nesting suggested it was um they were in colonies in that did they find them a lot of them all together but you're right that is problematic but they did it somehow
1: yeah they call so it colonial nesting, i think actually. it's a bit more like I, I think it might be a bit more like turtles like if they're all coming in and laying their eggs around the same couple mm-hmm. of days okay then you can you can kind of stand over your nest until everyone decides to leave you know like <laughs> fair enough there's no there's no reason for them to leave until like they're ready to go because you don't want anything stepping on your nest yeah you're right they had it figured out because they lasted. Yeah. they lasted a long time, and they
0: lasted all over the place. So they, they, whatever they were doing, it worked just fine.
1: Yeah, and it had to be quite successful because you yeah. think they would. There's no protection there. What the babies? They've got no armor. They've got no nothing. Like, yeah. there must have been thousands of them, and just like baby turtles, ninety-nine percent of them got eaten by everything because <laughs> there's not many of them getting to adulthood.
0: Interesting. Well, that's fascinating stuff. The titanosaurs are there's weird, a... man. They're
1: awesome. Well. I was going to say, there's one one. You kind of learn your lessons along the way. Like, I've been doing this a long time, and there was a, a BBC documentary, and I don't know if you, oh, uh, if you're a Canadian, you probably saw the Goodies. Did you ever watch the Goodies? No, I'm, I'm not. No, familiar. it's all right. It's, a BB, it's it's a British comedy show that they, they they're the same guys that were Monty Python. There was the Monty Python crew and the Goodies crew, and they kind of grew up together, and then they kind of separated, and half of them joined Monty Python, half of them joined the Goodies. Anyway uh so in camp in australia we always got this show called the goodies it's just this stupid hilarious show um but one of them um is a bird watcher and and he actually did a little documentary series about dinosaurs but they did the mechanics of dinosaurs they actually built things to see how they would work and mechanically building something changes everything and one of the most fascinating things they did was they actually built the way dinosaurs were built. So if you imagine a triceratops, triceratops are like a box. They're like a bed. There's four legs on either side of the body and, you know, there's just a bit of a head on the, on the, on the front, a bit of a tail on the end, but most of the weight is in the middle of that box. And then they build a Tyrannosaur with a giant head at the, the front. And then you've got your two legs in the middle of this body and then a giant tail behind. So then they just literally built these things and put, put them on people and went chasing right and so like yes they they were chasing each other pretty well but when the triceratops guy started to zigzag because this tyrannosaur guy had so much weight in front of him and so much weight behind him that he could do the first turn but by the time he was starting to swing his body around for the second turn the triceratops had ducked back again the other way and so within four four little zigzags Tramptor was nowhere near the triceratops. They just could not turn that way. Interesting. By physically building the thing, they kind of worked out they wouldn't turn very well at all. They just couldn't. And it's things like that that I always go, well, you've got to think about the mechanics of the thing. Mm -hmm. Like, how would that actually work? Yeah, and that's why, you know, I was standing under, I was uh, working at the Chicago Field Museum, and I was standing under a brontosaurus, and I was at at the front legs looking at the head going, it couldn't see me Yeah. It between its legs. There's no way it would see me. And that's the same for a baby anyway. so
0: That's very interesting. Yeah, think about
1: the mechanics of things. Cause they just, uh, I was
0: reading one thing on, is it the Arctometacarpal? There's a, that piece that goes in between that, some of the foot bones. That's the easy tyrannosaur. for you to say. Isn't it? Do I, unless I don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> and then they said that this, because it was fused in the Tyrannosaurus foot, that it was, it improved its agility. And so it, perhaps elaborated too greatly to suggest that it could like pirouette and things like that. But, um, maybe even just to keep
1: it. And I'm not saying it couldn't.
0: Well, yeah. Well, maybe just even to stay on course a little bit when you're that big, maybe you need to have the fused, uh, bones there just to be normal, let alone (laughs) like maybe it wasn't so it could be super agile. It was just so it could be agile at all and still be eight tons.
1: Yeah. One, if anybody wants to try an experiment next time you go shopping and you're carrying your shopping, carry your shopping, in front of you both bags as much as you can hold in front of you and then try and turn because don't forget they've got that giant head way in front of their pivot yeah. point of their legs and so that first turn that's easy to do because the weight will actually help you but then you've got to swing all that way back around to turn back and then if you've got to zigzag again if you're chasing an animal mm-hmm. um uh, <laughs> suddenly just realized what was that a uh will farrell movie um the land, land. The, when he's the, running, land of the land lost. of the lost. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Zigzag, <laughs> serpentine, serpentine. <laughs> I got to admit, I actually, I actually quite enjoyed that film. I thought that was, film was brilliant.
0: <laughs> it, you can get a little outlandish when you're being just silly, and I think, yeah, you're right. It works. <laughs> yes, and, and if it if was just si- silly, but <laughs> yeah. But. If it we're any more serious, it would, uh, it would, it wouldn't hold up to scrutiny. But when it's just goofy, you can do whatever you like. <laughs>
1: Uh. Yeah. <laughs> screw you, Matt
0: <battle> <laughs> So, the X-Men had to travel through the siege perilous to emerge in other places in the world, and they were conveniently untraceable by electronic surveillance, but you have traveled the world and done remarkable things by more common modes of transportation. So, you were telling me you worked at the London Natural History Museum, the Field Museum, the Smithsonian Museum of Natural History and the National Dinosaur Museum, and if anyone were wondering in Australia, that's where it is
1: in case you're wondering which nation national refers to, so. Yeah, yeah, so, uh, so National Dinosaur, I started off there around 2000. Mm-hmm. I was actually a rejectionist at the time and had just been projecting uh, Lost World when uh, my girlfriend at the time took me to uh, the NDM in, in Canberra, the capital of Australia, and um, I just got talking to one of the guys there and he was like, oh, you actually seem to know what you're talking about. <laughs> I'm like, oh, yeah, I've been doing this stuff my whole life. Like, chip one out, one of the weird things about Australia is um, if you're into dinosaurs and stuff, we had no real way of doing anything about that. Like, no dinosaurs had really been found until recently and no no universities really had paleontology. Like, yes, a few of them did, but um, though you were going to be studying fish and things like that. You weren't going to really be studying dinosaurs. So for a dinosaur fan... In Australia, in the 70s and 80s, you had nowhere to go. You just internalised it, you read what you could and then moved on with your life. Yeah, so just walking into this uh, brand new... And this museum had actually been opened in 1993 on the back of Jurassic Park, but the owners wanted to try and cash in on the dinosaur craze, so that's why it was created. So I'd been there for seven years and I'd never been. And um, finally, yeah, as I said, my girlfriend took me there and I just started talking and they went, Oh, well, would you like a job? doing tours and I started doing tours. And within a year I'd moved up into one of the managerial positions. And then I was basically the education manager in the um, uh, displays. I was creating a lot of the displays. And if you, even if you go to the museum today, you'll still see some of the displays I created. Most of them are still there. That's amazing. Uh, yeah. And then, yeah, then moved on, well, like I headed over to London, worked at the London Natural History Museum in the fish department, I will say. Okay. And one of the tricks I've learned throughout my whole career, and if you kids are out there listening, you want to work in a job, take anything in a take any position you can get in a museum mm-hmm. because you can always work your way up once you're in there. Cool. You know, because they'll always employ internally if they've got a somebody of substance that they can use. Um, so just get in and just do whatever they'll give you and just work, you know, keep an eye out, keep an ear out take any advantage of any opportunity that comes along work your way up so and that was what i planned to do just didn't just take the fish i don't even eat fish i know nothing about fish but (laughs) it was a job
0: yeah
1: turned out to be one of the coolest things i have ever done one of the major like the natural history museum has the majority of the world's type specimens obviously type specimens are the first specimen of an, an animal or a species that it was described because if you think, the British were everywhere, they described everything. Anybody who's doing a, 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 any scientist in the world that's doing something on trout or anything marine has to get the specimen from the London Natural History Museum. So one of my jobs was packaging up these specimens and sending them to museums all over the world. And when those specimens come back, unpacking them, making sure they're not damaged, and then putting them back in their display bottle or jar or whatever. And I still remember, one of these fish came back and I went to my boss, I pulled its jar off the, the, off the, the um, shelf and went, it was just the ugliest, dirtiest jar you've ever seen. <laughs> and I just went up to him and went, should I like clean it or put it in a new jar? And he just looked at me and went, you didn't read the label, did you? And I just looked at the empty jar label. It was like H.M. Beagle, 1830s, Darwin. So I'm holding an original jar with one of the original specimens that Charles Darwin collected when he was on the Beagle. And I was just dumbfounded at this. And then just to show you how much history they have in, in, uh, London and how little history Australia has, like, obviously we have a very long history, but the the actual nation of Australia does. It's only 200 years old. We don't have that much history Mm. uh, as Australia. Uh, yeah, he's just next to his desk, right next to his desk. It wasn't even locked away or anything. He just looks at me and goes, well, you're a Australian. You'll like this. And he just hands me a jar off his desk. And it's a jar with a fish in it. And all it said was, HM Endeavour Banks. I'm like, this is one of the fish that Joseph Banks caught in Botany Bay? <laughs> this fish is older than my country. <laughs> it's just sitting on your table. That's so, uh, Yeah, so it's just... That's what I mean. Like, just was doing all this amazing stuff, going, "Oh, well, you know, this is pretty good." That's really neat. Well, that yeah, you'd certainly be
0: <sighs> euphoric, I guess. I don't know how else you would describe it. Like being all of a sudden. Spontaneously discovering I've, all these, all these, all these I've important I've actually
1: got moments, a yeah. photo of myself that minute yes. in that jar, and I'm <laughs> beaming like an idiot. Like I just cannot stop smiling. That's amazing. I
0: was just gonna say, I remember just going through libraries Sorry. and finding old books and thinking, like, who has read this book? Like it's it's 300 years old. You go to the, yep. uh, you know, the college library and you find it. And you go, who in in 300 years have used this? And what have they done with it? But you're finding like not just a book. You're finding specimens that have been. Uh, poured over by well, by people well, who what's... are in the like you can go find their papers and their and their and their outcomes and their studies on this stuff. It's amazing.
1: Yeah, and like what? Well, I was going to say there's a book that was, produced, that was released while I was there about stories behind the scenes of the London Natural History Museum called Dry Story Number One. And if you haven't read it, read it. It's hilarious. <laughs> uh, one scientist he'd been there. He died like at 80 or something he'd been there since he was 20 he was the head of his department and he was so powerful that nobody ever looked into what he was doing and when he died they went into his offices and they discovered he'd done no work whatsoever except <laughs> all he'd done for the last 80 years was travel the halls of the london natural history museum collecting pubic hair and cataloguing it in okay. all the toilets and stuff and that's all he'd done and you're Like, wait what <laughs> but so i'm telling telling my boss this like like, like we were cataloging some dry specimens and i'm telling him that, about this book i'm like oh this is an amazing book you've got to read it and he just looked at me like do you have any idea what room we're in and we were in dry storeroom number one the actual room where all the dry specimens are kept okay the next box i open up has this dry fish out dry fish that i had to catalog and it had a written, handwritten label on it which was uh, dr lingston Tanzania, wow and i'm literally holding this fish that's called uh cleared by livingston and i'm just going this place is so weird <laughs> like it's just so much history here." in the next it's box crazy. it wasn't labeled but it had the foundation in it yeah yeah and it was handwritten by livingston so <laughs> amazing i thought you were know, going to find a box just, with uh, hair, so. a big tuft of pubic hair in it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, that, that probably would have been better for the story but yeah it's just um, <laughs> But, uh, yeah, no. Thoroughly loved my time there. It was just, what a crazy place. Like, I just, I cannot, if you ever get it, if you haven't been and you get you've got to get to the NDM, like the the, uh, London Natural History Museum. That place is crazy. So not only have you been to crazy places, but you've met and worked with
0: uh, crazy people too. You worked with. I call them cool people because they get to work with dinosaurs at the Smithsonian. Okay. You mentioned, uh, you got to meet the amazing Dr. Scott, the paleontologist from the dinosaur train or otherwise known as Dr. Scott Sampson. Did you get the inside scoop on the dinosaur train before yes. it came out?
1: Yeah. Tell I, me about that. What? I think it was the, um, yeah. So I, I, cause it's so long ago, I can't remember if it was the launch of the TV or the launch of the first DVD and videos being released but he did a big talk at uh, the Smithsonian and they invited all the dinosaur fan kids, like train, like there was just millions of kids in this, stuffed into this room. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a g- g- gregarious, I can talk and I'm big and scary and obvious. So uh, they asked, well, can we give you a microphone? Can you walk through a crowd? And when the kids ask a question, can you repeat the question to Dr. Scotty? And I'm like, yeah, absolutely. And then because all the kids are like, well, my dad, he said that you know, like whenever you ever ask a question, you're going to get you just don't know what you're going to get back yeah. from them. Um, so I just kind of have to riff it and, and kind of. Uh, so we were having a great time. We were just uh, laughing amongst ourselves, like trying to trying to translate the questions the kids were asking into a question that I could actually ask him. Um, but yeah, so you know, it's just one of things like that. I got to London. Like, in London's such a weird place that. Uh, real estate agents will actually pick you up and drive you around to the, like you you, you kind of, we want a three bedroom place with a blah, blah, blah. They'll get a list, a bunch of them, and they'll take you around and have a look at them because it's all pretty reasonably close. So literally I'd only just arrived the day before. That morning we got picked up by our real estate agent was driving around. I drove past, I, I have no idea where I am. They're just showing us houses and we drive down this street and there's a tyrannosaur skull in the window. And I'm like, oh, wait, can we stop? And the real estate is like, yeah, sure. I'm like, oh, there's only five minutes. And I jumped into the... And it was a shop. And it was this fossil shop uh, called Ammonite 2000. And I now know it's on Chelsea, which is one of the major uh, uh, streets in, like, um, uh, you know, that's where all the socks, the soccer wives go and spend all their money on okay. clothes and stuff. All right. Yeah, so I just ran in. Guy's on the phone. And I'm like, oh, sorry, buddy. Um, and he just, like got off the phone and went oh can i help you i'm like sorry buddy um just to let you know i've just moved to london i know how to sell this stuff i'm not actually looking for a job but if you need somebody who knows how to sell this stuff and talk about this stuff and just need them for a couple of hours a week or something i'd all than be happy to help out uh here's my business card from the national dinosaur museum i'm the education manager there just to prove who i am and i've just written the hotel that i'm staying at on the back and the whole time he just looked at me like I would just, you know, farted or something. He had the weirdest look on his face and I was just like babbling. Cause I'm like, this isn't going very well at all. And I went, okay, I'll, I'll let you get back to your phone call. Thanks very much. And left by the time we got back to the hotel, there was a message waiting for me. Okay. And, uh, I rang the guy up and he's like, oh yeah, are you the guy who walked in the shop? I'm like, yeah. He's like, what are you doing tomorrow? I'm like, nothing. Can you get out to Kensal Green? Sure. Where's Kensal Green? (laughs) He's like, okay, you you don't know where you are. Catch this train, get off at this train station, walk up the street. You see a a door with a blue door, walk through that, and I'll meet you at 9 o'clock tomorrow. I'm like, okay, can I ask why? He's like, we have a dinosaur showing up tomorrow, and do you know how to build a dinosaur, put it together? (laughs) And I'm like, what sort of dinosaur? He's like, oh, we bought a. Uh, Meet dinosaur. It's Greg. Something. I'm like Gorgosaurus, or Gre- yeah, I can do that. So yeah, I showed up. I did everything they said. Showed up that morning. Built their bloody dinosaur that they just bought from Black Hills Institute in America. Uh, and then they had a professional photographer come around and they were taking photos of it so they could start selling it. Amazing. And then once they were done, I broke it all up and we we packed it away. And then uh, the guy who I'd been talking to the day before at the shop came uh, showed up uh, and. We, we went to the pub after we'd finished, and we were just sitting there, and he looked at me and went, you're probably wondering why I was looking at you funny. I'm like, yeah, I was a bit nervous. Like, I didn't think it was going very well at all. And he's like, okay, I'm not lying. This is what happened. I was talking to the owner who you talked to, and um, I was chatting away, and I went, oh, my God, we have this dinosaur showing up tomorrow. Do you know how to put a dinosaur together? I don't know how to put a dinosaur together. <laughs> and they're arguing, going, what are we going to do? And then the guy in the shop went, by the way, we probably should get somebody who can help us out. Somebody who can just work a couple of hours a week. Somebody who doesn't need a lot of work. An Australian would be good. They work hard. And that's when I walked in. And so he thought he was getting set up. He thought the guy had sent me and it set them up completely. But anyway, so we eventually had to set up this dinosaur in their shop. And then I was talking to the producer of the David Attenborough documentaries and stuff, and just I was just there... I. Uh, my uniform at the National Dinosaur Museum is like a Steve Irwin you know, those bush shirts and things. So I was actually still wearing my, I, I brought it with me, so I was wearing my National Dinosaur Museum. Oh, crikey, we have a dinosaur. And, uh, yeah, we are talking all, all, all the rich people who were coming in for the, the launch of this dinosaur in their shop. And, yeah, I suddenly found myself talking to all these TV producers and very, very closely almost got a TV show out of it. Wow. That's amazing. So that's in... Yeah, sorry, that's... That's, that was the whole point of that story. You almost got a TV show. So
0: that's in London, and you mentioned that uh, Sir David Attenborough was with you there. For anyone who doesn't know uh, David Attenborough, has done two incredible things. One, he's the voice of nature documentaries on the BBC and probably PBS or whatever other countries call their nature channels. And second, he's Richard Attenborough's or John Hammond's little brother, which is kind of neat too. So you got to work with David Attenborough a little Mm -hmm.
1: bit. Also... Uh, Yeah, just yeah, he because he was at the London Natural History Museum all the time. Yeah, and I, 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 you know, met him like twice in the hallways and stuff. And then he did a book signing. I got to chat to him for a while, and I actually gave him a copy of the Prehistoric Times. So I've got a nice photo of me handing him uh, our magazine. Going, I literally wrote this because when I was a kid, I broke my leg, and my dad used to come home from school uh, from his work. And at about 6 o'clock in the afternoon, the David Attenborough Life series would come on and he'd wheel the TV into my room and we'd sit there and just watch the David Attenborough documentaries. And so that was a massive part of my life. So I was just kind of saying, just thank you for that. You you literally put me on this path. (laughs) But the weird thing is his son. So his son is an anthropologist Mm -hmm. and he was uh, running the ANU, the Australian National University, which is in Canberra. And so... David Attenborough, it was actually in Canberra. All the, Canberra's this weird place that I'm surprised if anybody's even heard of the place. Yeah, it's the capital of Australia. And Jackie Chan is from Canberra. His family lives there. They own the Chinese restaurant on the main street. <laughs> um, and David Attenborough would be there all the time. Um, and just up the road from Canberra is a place called Conoundra, and that's a very famous foss- fish fossil site. And there's documentaries. He just goes out there all the time. He just loves it. He heads out there. Every time he's in at Canberra, he heads out to commander and looks at the, the fish fossils and what they've discovered recently. So yeah, he's he's just weirdly been part of my life for a very long time, even though yeah, I've only met him a few times.
0: <laughs> I can imagine. That's uh, that's really wild. And uh, and I guess speaking of Attenboroughs and film, we can get to the book a little bit. Why do you, I guess, in your opinion... Yeah,
1: well, <laughs> get, get, get into the book. <laughs> Why do you think Spielberg Let's adapted
0: such a different version of Hammond for the movie than Crichton envisioned in his novel. What do you think the major reasons there were?
1: Well, cause this was coming up. I started reading the book again. Mm-hmm. Uh, I will admit it's been a while since I've read it. I read it like a demon when it first came out. Like I, I'm sure a lot of us did, you know, the only, we didn't have Jurassic park the movie then and there was no documentaries or anything coming out at that time. So it was a a, a desert <laughs> of non dinosaur, anything. Um, so yeah, I remember reading it a lot of times and going back, it's a weird experience reading it now with all of that history, all that Jurassic Park history behind. Mm-hmm. I think it's because Spielberg is actually a very decent storyteller and he knew what he was doing. And if we got a lot of what we had, I was mentioning before, we were a bit disappointed we weren't getting some of the stuff that we'd hoped was in the book. Yeah. I think if we had got the book the way it was written, that movie would not have been anywhere near as successful as it was. Mm-hmm. I think Spielberg, for cinema, is a fantastic storyteller and he knows how to tell a story. And if we'd got that Hammond, I don't think the movie would have been anywhere near as successful as it was. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, Hammond in the book's a bit of a dick. He's terrible. And, and, He's terrible. Uh, 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 yeah, yeah. Like, whereas the, 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 the movie one's a bit of a daughter and grandpa and, oh, isn't he sweet? Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I, you know, and I think that's why he realised, you know, You could say it's stereotypes, like if if you're making a movie that is going to appeal for a long time, Mm -hmm. then I think you have to hit a lot of beats, you know, like the Miracle on 34th Street or Mm -hmm. any of those Christmas movies that just last a lot of time. They've got iconic characters that are very stereotypical, and I think he realised that, and that's why I think we got the Hammond we did in this movies because I think the the Hammond from the book just wouldn't have sunk. Plus we've already got him in other characters. Like, you know, we've got Malcolm who's already, you know, complaining the whole way through. Like he's the negative. Yeah. So you need a positive and that's Hammond. Who's all positive and no, this is going to work. This is going to be great. It's going to be the best ever spared. No expense. Sorry. I, I don't know that he was ever
0: outlined as British in the book. I don't know that that was, his nationality was ever discussed. Although Hammond's a Scottish name, I believe. Yeah, but that doesn't mean anything
1: in America. Not, not necessarily. I, so he, he doesn't. In, but I wonder when in Chicago man and all... yeah, <laughs> Chicago. i oh, sorry. I was just gonna say, like they celebrate, like um uh saint patrick's day like nobody else and i'm standing there going i'm more irish than all you (laughs) (laughs) but i wonder america's got this weird thing about their heritage yeah so i don't think it ever specified that he was anything
0: and so i wonder when they cast uh attenborough if if there is there's a i don't want to say like the butler did it sort of but the received pronunciation the the it sounds like he's hosting and so he comes across as a maitre d' almost, or a, or somebody who's really inviting you to be on a journey. And so he's very nice and kind, and he's giving you, uh, I guess, the, the grand tour. It feels like the grand tour that you're getting. It's almost regal or royal, you know what I mean? That you wouldn't have got with an American and, and, uh, portrayal.
1: And that could have been also because of his brother. So mm-hmm. we all grew up with... Uh, like in documentaries, when you hear an English person, you listen because they are obviously English. They know what they're talking about, and they're very well educated, and they went to fantastic universities. And so, that brings a certain weight to it, just being British. Yeah. And ju- just just what you're talking about then made me kind of think. Also, being a storyteller, he's more than aware, well aware that for the last thirty years, the English have been the villains of Hollywood. If you watch Star Wars, every all the empire of british actors (laughs) like Mm -hmm. they're like um the british are kind of if you if you need a villain you want an english guy so in the book he's portrayed as a villain and so maybe he was playing off going you think you're going to get the villain because you hear the british accent and he's i'm actually going to make him a nice guy so maybe he was just kind of tricking us a little bit as well maybe
0: well certainly there's um there's something to be said for the masterpieces of of drama that are are portrayed in the um shakespearean villains that come off of the british stage that you can easily find a shakespearean classically trained actor and say that is a good villain and they and they can you put that in hollywood and you can you can conjure all those emotions and feelings and gravitas with just an accent and i guess the right posture and pronunciation but you can get all of that all that is signified very quickly and when you're making a movie you got to signify it fast and get get that idea expressed immediately so you can move on and keep building your story there's not a lot of time for it so i wonder if there's an adoption of of using that um that british tradition into making your villains because they do they
1: they don't make bad villains that's for sure no that's true and also they speak well and they you know like (laughs) yeah um plus honestly i also think it's just he's a big fan of david lean he's a big fan of british cinema he's a big fan and he actually gets a chance to work with one of the icons of British cinema. Mm-hmm. Why wouldn't you try and shoot him into your movie? So when you're waiting for
0: the the movie to finally come to Australia, you're probably reading the book over and over. And you mentioned that you were yep. disappointed that the aviary wasn't there. You, you mentioned that uh, when the Tyrannosaur hops in the lagoon and starts chasing them through the water, that watching the Tyrannosaur swim yeah.
1: didn't make it. When I first read the book, that was one of my favorite bits. I still remember the joy of reading that. Yeah. They jump in their little boat and they get across the, the lake and then suddenly the tyrannous dives in the water and is chasing after them and they're like, who knew dinosaurs could swim? And they're like, have you ever seen a lizard that can't swim? <laughs> and it's one of those light bulb moments like, that's a good point. I'd never even thought of that. Yeah, so I was kind of, especially when they kept hinting that the tyrannousel was free and everything, I'm like, oh, we're going to get the river, we're going to get the lake, we're going to get that and never got that.
0: There are a lot of parts that were in the book that they didn't quite make yeah. like the movie. And yeah, yeah. Uh, if you want to catalog the things that you loved about the book, I'm here for it.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, like, as I said, I started reading it again. And there's a lot of things that I'm actually shocked at how much is in the movie. Like, mm-hmm. little beats, just tiny little things that, like, now that I know the movie so well, because... Of, i will admit like i'm i'm such a jurassic park nerd that i went every single week of their, its release uh so the first initial thing i went once a week every week and then when they re released it, like for christmas i think it was a couple of months later like half a half a year later i went again and then sadly when they released the 3d version i will say in in in, in canberra it was only on for three weeks but mm-hmm. i went every week so i've been every single week that jurassic park has been on just on on the cinema Wow. Um, so I get to know the movie pretty well. And so going back through the book now, there's just tiny little things that I'd forgot, like, because I hadn't read the book for a while. There's a lot in it. Like, he's done a really accurate. Mm-hmm. Like, I just don't think we've given him enough uh, Spielberg enough credit that he did actually base almost everything in the film. It's in the book. So when you think of it that way, he wasn't, you know, he may have switched a couple of little things around, like made Hammond a bit nicer than he was, but Mm -hmm. all the scenes and all the action and all the things that happen are actually in the book. Mm -hmm. So we could never, he could never have put it all in the movie because it'd be a four, five, six hour movie. You're absolutely right. Um, And the budget would be crazy. (laughs) (laughs) But one of the things I am remembering, and I remember at the time is the stuff that even in the book, it's kind of forgotten, whereas it's the mystery of the half of the storyline that isn't in the movie that is in the book is the reason why uh, paleontologist uh, yeah, Alan Grant uh, with the kids the reason why they're trying to get back so urgently is because they saw the dinosaurs on the boat mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and they've got to get back and get the boat recalled so that they don't get off the island and that's obviously not in the movie mm-hmm. but before that like the first third of the book is about this mystery of these babies being murdered yeah. around <laughs> yes. Costa Rica yes. by all these lizards yes and i've forgotten all about that i'm like oh well there's a reason why he's not putting that in the in, in the movie but even the book doesn't come, seem to come back to that like mm-hmm. that means the dinosaurs are off the island and it's never really they're trying they're freaking out about the the dinosaurs in the bone. like but they're already off the island we know they're already off the island that's right like like, I loved it, but as I was reading it, I was remembering, wait, I remember reading this the first time going, they never actually go into this again. They never go back to the Pro I think it was, they were saying, had got off the island.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um,
1: but I love that. I just love that whole detective part at the beginning where, you know, there was this bit of a, a corpse of a dinosaur and it was getting sent around to all these various museums and, and genetic laboratories and everything and everybody was kind of going, oh, it can't be what we think it is. And I was loving that. I was thinking, that, that that's really good. You know, like uh, if anybody ever remakes Jurassic Park, I think that's part of the thing that they should probably concentrate on.
0: Yeah, the big um, mystery
1: part that they build,
0: there's a good 70 pages and, and it's like, what is this and what's going on? And so the podcast would be going chapter by chapter and we're going through uh, yep. how that mystery is built and what we should be paying attention to. And then you get to the chapter, it's called yep. uh, Target of Opportunity. And so we've got this mystery that you're being strung along, and like, what is it? What is it? And then this final chapter where uh, Dodson's at BIOS and he's like, oh, yeah, they're they're cloning dinosaurs, and we should uh we should uh, steal them, and it kind of sp- steals the thunder. Yeah,
1: <laughs> you haven't yeah, even like, got to the it's island just, yet. It's just like balloon pop. Like, <laughs> yeah. And I think I know why. Like I I I I because I'm me. What I do is I research. I research like a demon. Mm. And I, I, I start reading some um, interviews uh, about what. Crichton said about writing the book. And what he said was, uh, originally it was a completely different story. It was a, uh, it was a, a boy and his dinosaur. Story. Is that right? Okay. And it was a, more of a kid's book. Yeah. And, and, and he, and he actually wrote it. He wrote this book about this young kid and, and he found a dinosaur, or a dinosaur had escaped or it had survived or be in Costa Rica. And, he gave it, he's got a whole bunch of people that he trusts that you know he'd send the stuff to to read and every single one of them went, we hate this. This is the most ridiculous thing. Does not work. And then he just started watching some documentaries and reading some stuff about genetics and things like that and then completely rewrote the story as Jurassic Park. So I think that first bit might be a remnant of how the kid gets his dinosaur maybe because it's almost like two different stories when you think about it. Because it literally does stop the second they go, let's go to the island and steal this stuff. Because they're genetically making them. Then every the first third of the book's kind of gone. You're like, you never come back to it, and that's yeah. a totally different story. Or so I try. So and, maybe that's what happened. Like it was a remnant.
0: Maybe I try and break the book down. I look at the different iterations, and there's seven. I, I, I look at them as kind of like different acts. They, I I try and like when they get yep. first iteration, second iteration, I, I consider them act breaks. And so you the second act break. Uh, where you enter into the third iteration is right after they arrive on the island and they see the Apatosaurs and then yep. it, you're blown away and then bang, the next is welcome to Jurassic Park, which is awesome. Like that pacing, the timing, amazing. And, uh, and at this yep. point you get the, you've got the mystery. How are they doing? Or what are we doing? And it's lulling you into this, I guess, believing in the science. I suppose that's part of it. Cause at no point when you, I've, I've made this argument, you, You've got the book. It's got a dinosaur skull on the cover. It's called Jurassic Park, so you know it's about dinosaurs. The back cover tells you it's about an island that's bringing dinosaurs back from extinction. And so you've got this first uh, 60, 70 pages going, what's going on here? You know it's going to be about dinosaurs. That's not a Like, the reader knows. And so I don't know what the teasing it along means. I don't know why that's there, because it's 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 there. And then, it, and then it's presented by biosyn in some weird chapter where right after he says they're cloning dinosaurs and then they're going to make miniature dinosaurs and feed them special pet food. Like immediately they take dinosaurs and make it into like the most ridiculous thing you ever heard. So I don't, it's this bizarre mystery that he lays out where he's teasing you. Like, what could it be? What could it be when you know what it is? And then when he pops yeah. the buzz, uh, pops the balloon, it it's like anticlimactic in a terrible way. But when you see the apatosaur, it blow. it's amazing. It's just like in yeah. the film, exactly the same. You feel it, just the palpitations, it, the, it's incredible. Even in in the text, let alone when you see it on screen, you don't need the the fancy score to accentuate how wonderful it is. The book
1: really captures that moment really, really well. Yes, just a couple of things. And this is where it gets weird. Yeah. I don't know if it's an Australian thing, but our book didn't have that cover. Okay, right. Oh, you were so, saying, yeah, you had a lousy cover. Our book, our... Yeah, our our cover was just a picture of an island in the ocean with a storm over it and a lightning strike. Okay. No dinosaur on the cover whatsoever. So I actually went into reading the book not knowing anything. I didn't even know there was going to be dinosaurs in it. I was assuming there would be Mm -hmm. because of the name. (laughs) But, you know, there was no internet or anything back then. Uh, Just somebody was saying something, you know, I think the tagline was something historic is moving around, walking around or something. Is that Um, right? So, yes. so so I was quite happy to discover that it was the other thing is there's a bit with Malcolm who then brings in the maths and we were talking about like this mystery with the uh babies getting attacked and everything and even in that storyline you know that there was a dinosaur attack they've already given you three or four examples of somebody some mother walking into a bassinet and the baby's dead with this lizard's biting its face off so we know it's dinosaurs eating these babies and then malcolm comes in just before you're talking about just before the apatosaurus and he's saying the maths is it's not dinosaurs yeah the math it is, eh? says that uh we can see this the statistics are showing there was a rise in attacks by lizards and then there was a fall in attacks by lizards and then there was a rise and that doesn't say that there's necessarily uh lizards attacking kids mm-hmm. it's saying that there's that's a normal pathogen, like that's a, a a normal fluctuation. The math tells us that it's that's a normal thing, like it's a, and basically negates that it could be a dinosaur at all. Like the he, so they've already stepped away, but we're sitting there going, but well, we've already been given, given three things telling us it was a dinosaur. So I don't know what you're getting at there. That's a bit strange. See, that, what I was it was yeah, that was just listening to it going. But well, I, I do agree. The other thing I would say is. It shows you the difference between cinema and book. So Grant, as as he's looking at these dinosaurs, to say, he's pretty calm. Like, you know, in the movie, he's like staggering around going, oh, my God, the greatest thing I've always wanted to see my whole life is a dinosaur walking in front of me and I can see a dinosaur walking in front of me. Yeah. Where Grant in the book is kind of like, oh, cool.
0: That's interesting. <laughs> In the book, there's a moment where, so it's it's clearly explained, Grant became an overnight sensation because of his observations and discoveries uh, about Mayasauri nesting. Yeah, I was going to say, so it's clearly based off... Um... Jack Horner. And, and so it names Jack Horner yeah, too. Yeah, so The two of them became famous together. So Grant is established in the book to have kind of made a name for himself on Myasura nesting, Mayasaura, uh nurturing habits. I believe he might have been co-credited with naming Myasaura. And so Mayasaur, that's his baby. That's the dinosaur he likes. Yeah. And then he finds himself atop a tree after the Hadrosaur stampede. And yep. uh, the Myasaur is at the bottom of the tree and he's looking at it. And the conversation is around how stupid they are. And that was it. And I thought, it seems curious (laughs) to me, like maybe the pacing just didn't play for it. Like you got to keep this story moving along and he's got to get back to the visitor center so he can radio about the ship. And there's lots of other story elements that are going on about Muldoon trying to wrangle animals and uh, Arnold trying to get the systems back online. And so maybe there wasn't a lot of room for it, but it just felt to me like this is the guy where Myasauro has been a big part of his life and his career. And he meets one. It doesn't really connect with it in any way other than, oh, it's really dumb. And that was it. And I thought, it oh, feels like yeah, it was lacking. Like,
1: in, in, at every opportunity, they miss that beat. Like mm-hmm. um, when they're going through the genetic labs for the first time and they're seeing all the babies hatching and stuff and uh, the first Velociraptor. Mm-hmm. And in the movie, it's like, oh my God, you created Velociraptors? That's ridiculous. We're all going to die. Yeah, It's all doom and gloom. Like, oh my God, it's a Velociraptor. In the book, it's just like, oh, Velociraptor, interesting. I just found one of them. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. Okay, (laughs) are we going to explore this anymore? (laughs) (laughs) It does make an interesting point. And that's what I mean. Just the whole way through, he's this cool customer. It's just like nothing phases him. In fact, he's more interested in Timmy. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He's like, yeah. it even goes into the oh he likes kids you know he always, he's always fascinated by anybody who's interested in dinosaurs and he goes and it goes in this whole thing of why they think dinosaurs are cool and everything it's kind of just like oh this is a bit weird like it's, it's just missing the enthusiasm that any one of us who has ever worked around dinosaurs at all in their lives or or is a fan at all if you got a chance to see a real dinosaur what are you doing <laughs> like you're just like oh that's interesting he doesn't even say that really he's just like oh okay you're absolutely right.
0: Well, there'd be so much more to say to talk about in terms of all the different dinosaurs that they get. I want to learn more about what, you, why you think that they have a giant dragonfly on the island. I've got more things I'd love to ask you about in terms of the mystery building. I think that there's a deception that uh, I think there was a twist that Crichton was trying to write into it about uh, uh, Dodson's man being maybe not Nedry. I think we we're supposed to believe yeah. that it might have been Malcolm. I think he was teasing it that way uh there's certainly lots more to talk about about uh Muldoon and all the exciting things that he does in the film but we've been on this for an hour we're out of time would you come back and do more of this with me yeah. another day whenever you'd like
1: are you sure okay
0: have you had fun has it been good yeah absolutely I've loved oh, having no, no. you I, I, I,
1: love, I love doing this, this great I talk for a living
0: that's <laughs> the problem well this has been incredible I've been so happy to have you I really really appreciate you coming on and thank you so much Well, thanks for having us. Thank you to my special guest, Phil. He was incredible, uh, and I can't wait to have him back sometime. Our chapter this week is Chateau, spanning from pages 63 to 64. In a synopsis, Grant and Sattler board Hammond's jet to journey to his secret island resort, and they meet Gennaro. Uh, We have different characters this time in the short chapter. Uh, Alan Grant. Grant admits that the true reason he's on this trip, especially now on short notice, is for the money, and he hates it. I hate to wait on the money men, he says on page 63. Hammond's resort has piqued Grant's curiosity, though, and he understands fully well how patronage works. Grant dislikes Gennaro on sight. He doesn't like the luck of him. Ellie Sattler, jumping through hoops for cash, goes with the job, Ellie feels, with a shrug. These excursions don't seem to bother her as much as they do Grant. Hammond meets Ellie and calls her Dr. Sattler, and nobody corrects him. But I still feel it's dubious that she is in fact a doctor of paleobotany, At only 24 years old. it suggested she doesn't like Gennaro as well. John Hammond. He shakes Grant's hand when he boards the aircraft. Upon introducing Grant and Sattler to Gennaro, Hammond pokes a little fun at them by saying that they're paleontologists, believing that paleontology's days in usefully exploring the lives of extinct animals is short-lived. Hammond says they'll be there only 48 hours. He says, too, that they've been, quote, very, very careful about making sure nobody knows about the island's true nature. On page 64. Donald Gennaro, depicted as a stocky, muscular man in his mid-thirties, wearing an Armani suit and wire-frame glasses. Grant dislikes Gennaro on sight. He greets them warmly enough, but is astonished to meet Ellie Sattler, seeing that she's a striking young woman. Not a dusty old man. He thinks it's important to get right down to the island. There's a stewardess. She's wearing a blue uniform and requests everyone to take their seat. And there's a pilot. The pilot announces that it'll be four hours to fly to Dallas from Chateau where they'll be picking up Ian Malcolm. Localities, Chateau. This is in, I guess, Montana. Uh, Dry plains stretching toward distant black buttes with dust and tumbleweeds blowing across the cracked concrete. And we'll call the private jet a location as well. The little private jet is called a Grumman. Uh, not just a Gulfstream II on page 63. The official name is, of the aircraft is a Grumman Gulfstream II. This is an American twin-engine business jet model number G-1159 and even a military designation of C-11A. The engine is designed by Rolls-Royce with a high-speed and long-range capability. Uh, apparently, they were very noisy for an aircraft of their size, and when a 2013 FAA rule prohibited the operation of jets weighing 75,000 pounds or less, uh, hush kits were installed on non-compliant aircraft. Grant finds it surprisingly cramped inside despite its luxurious appointments. There's a stewardess in a blue uniform on board. Uh, Literary techniques. The M-dash is another one of the tools that Crichton just keeps going back to. Here we have, that is how patronage worked. How it had always worked on page 63. Again, the M-dash is employed in this moment to add a perfunctory statement in conclusion of this thought. So the M-dash is used kind of specifically for the grammar. Uh, Conditional tense. Began to laugh as if they found the idea very funny on page 64. They're not laughing because this is funny, but they're laughing, and I suppose Grant is interpreting this as if it were funny. They're probably laughing more because I know something you don't know. This is a tough moment because Hammond's like, "Uh, I've done something that's going to make you obsolete. Uh, It's hilarious. I'm so funny. That, it's kind of cruel. A dramatic irony. When Hammond introduces Grant and Sattler to Gennaro, he jokes that the field workers are paleontologists and that they dig up dinosaurs. This is only fun in, so much as Gennaro and Hammond believe that cloning dinosaurs will mean that the field of paleontology will decrease in value, but the paleontologists don't know that yet. So this is the dramatic irony. Um, we have some foreshadowing to the end. To end the chapter, on an intriguing note, Crichton employs a bit more foreshadowing of what's to come. Namely, in this sense, that the island's true nature is a carefully guarded secret. Quote, we have been very, very careful about making sure nobody knows about it until the day we finally open the island to a surprised and delighted public. On page 64. Uh, In terms of stylistic techniques, beyond literary techniques, we have an interesting perspective on form. This brief chapter is only two pages, and any scene should advance either the character or the plot. And frankly, all they're doing is waiting for him as jet. so this isn't moving forward the plot, it must be revealing character. So this must be a moment where we really focus on the characters. However brief, reading into what's written about Grant is very important, at least to Crichton to include. In the discussion section, we'll dig much deeper into what is being said about Grant's character. In further discussion, we have costly digging. Grant admits that the true reason he's on this trip, especially now on short notice, is for the money. He must be desperate for funding, or funding must be very difficult to come by. If he's willing to interrupt his work at this exciting time, leaving the dig site unsupervised with only, like, the kids behind, especially with such a consequential and important discovery in their sites, a fully articulated infant carnivore skeleton. I hate to wait on the many men, he says. Perhaps we can read this suggesting that he feels like he's compromising not on his ethics or his morals, but perhaps on his principles. The work is very important, and it feels like the work is being cheapened by the hoops he must jump through to find funding to support the work. The discussion following the quote suggests that physics and chemistry receive federal funding, read from the American government, to support their discoveries, but paleontology is seen as an afterthought, and perhaps Grant feels some indignity as a result. Again, he's a working-class fellow, and continuously asking for money from the upper class is distasteful in his eyes. Hammond's resort has piqued Grant's curiosity— But he'd visit on his own terms. However, he's dismayed or disappointed with the circumstances because he understands fully well how patronage works. To get the money, you got to dance when the organ grinder turns his handle. I believe we can read into this that this is an element of his work he is not proud of. So is Grant acting as a foil for Hammond? Grant's disinterest in raising capital is firmly set against his meeting with Hammond, knowing that Hammond is the very opposite. He's been tremendously successful in raising capital. They are both dreamers who use their powers of imagination to envision realities. Future realities for Hammond and past realities for Grant. However, they're categorically of different worlds. Grant is working class, where doing the work is important, and funding is very hard to come by, while Hammond is the teacup dinosaur hunter, the money man, who is wildly successful at fundraising hundreds of millions of dollars in capital. And spoken like a truly sociopathic industrialist, Hammond pokes a jab at Sadler and Grant's expense, by joking with Gennaro, saying, you know what they do? They're paleontologists. They dig up dinosaurs. And then he laughs, as if he found it very funny. This is taken with some dramatic irony. The paleontologists don't know that the field of studying dinosaurs is about to dramatically change, and their careers may be forever devastated. This would be like the CEO of Walmart introducing a 40-year-old and a 24-year-old cashier to a majority shareholder at Walmart, and saying, you know what these two do? They're cashiers! Ha 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 Which is all the more funny because they're going to be installing automatic cash registers and eliminate their jobs. Don't ever let this Hammond go unseen. John Hammond sucks. And even if the subtext and dramatic irony of their careers being obsolete weren't heavily written into the text, just laughing at their career choice as if he found the idea very funny is so demeaning, belittling, and dehumanizing that it's... I'll put it politely, it's gross. Imagine sitting in this munchkin's little jet with his lawyer, getting ready to take a grand tour of his sweet little private island. I'd be like, hey, I can't wait to shut your island down. Gennaro. Donald Gennaro. Grant dislikes Gennaro on sight, and this figures into the working class versus upper class dichotomy as well. Gennaro is coded as upper crust, in an Armani suit and wireframe glasses, to be read as not having calloused hands, not used to getting his hands dirty is seen as another money man Grant must now bow to for funding, someone he must feign respect for. I'm still not entirely sure how to read the misunderstanding that Gennaro has regarding Ellie Sattler being a female, which which was set up on a phone call in episode 10, Cowan, Swain, and Ross, on page 51. Finally, meeting Sattler in person, he blurts out, You're a woman, on page 63. That's how I introduce myself to people. I, I basically label their gender upon laying eyes on them, uh, and that's never problematic. Yeah. Yeah, I don't see any problems with that. In any case, be, perhaps this is Crichton's shortcut way of making us also not like Gennaro, even though he's being written up to this point as a very sympathetic character. He's a hard-working family man who's been pulled away from his daughter's birthday party because of dangerous concerns at Hammond's Resort. Work is forcing this upon him. Gennaro has already got way more backstory and empathy built up so far uh, compared to Sattler. She doesn't have anything, and she's supposed to be one of our heroes. But we need to dislike him as much as Grant does so this cringy moment can help persuade us of Crichton's vision for the character. Sattler! Sattler is portrayed in this chapter as entirely unflappable. Nothing seems to bother her. Bending a knee to the money man goes with the jobs. Stupefying expressions of idiocy? These things happen. Oh, also, she's a woman. Played to hilarious effect. Or not. Feminism. We get two women both identified by their careers in this chapter. The first is Ellie Sattler, said to be a doctor of paleobotany, and it's written that it's surprisingly stupefying that she is a woman. Uh, There's also the stewardess wearing a blue uniform, who I guess serves drinks and tells people when to sit. Timeline. Their their flight was, you'll recall, at 5 p.m. That's when they had to meet the jet at Chateau, here in Chateau, uh, at 5 p.m. And what I'd imagine is their local time, which is GMT. And it's four hours flying time to reach Dallas, which would take us up to, like, 9 p.m. GMT. But Texas is in the CST, an hour ahead of GMT. So, so they're 9 p.m. GMT arrival would be, really, 10 p.m. CST. And you'll recall, you'll have to excuse us, Hammond says, but we are in a bit of a rush. Donald thinks it's important we get right down there, on page 64. However, we're told on page 71 that Malcolm steps aboard the jet shortly before midnight. So, so for all their rushing, they actually lose an hour or two between 10 p.m. and shortly before midnight in Texas, no matter about their rushing anyhow. And really, I think that's what Jurassic Park teaches us, that airports suck the life out of your plans. Believe me. <laughs> Take my word for it, Hammond says, turning to Grant. We'll be down there for no more than 48 hours, on 64. The continuing trope of having characters end a conversation or an argument by saying, believe me, as if that gives them the final word, rears its head again in this chapter. Take my word for it, Hammond tells Grant, and Sadler, we'll be down there no more than 48 hours. Crichton just likes using that type of dialogue, I guess. I mean, Grant's already on the jet. The jet's already moving. But after being told to take Hammond's word, Grant buckles his seatbelt. <laughs> uh, building a mystery. Hammond says that they've been quote, very, very careful about making sure nobody knows about the island's true nature, on page 64. But this hasn't been entirely successful. Obviously, Bob Morse and the EPA are acutely aware that he's up to something by setting up shop with incredibly powerful genetic engineering tools in a South American country that's naive about about genetic engineering rules and regulations. And likewise, the next chapter specifically will outline that given the correct mindset, that figuring out what he's done on that island is entirely doable. So, Presently, the mystery still stands. What is Hammond doing out on the island? We'll find that Crichton carries mysteries for a few chapters, answering them, and then a new mystery arises. Perhaps they're associated with each iteration? That'd be interesting to check out. The first iteration was, what's with this mysterious little lizard that bit Tina Bowman? The second iteration, the mysterious little green lizard mystery transforms into the, what the heck is Hammond doing over on that island with supercomputers, genetic technology, amber, and financially supporting northern digs. The third iteration, the mysterious island mystery, transforms into the who is Dodgson's man mystery, and how the heck did Hammond clone dinosaurs. And there are seven iterations. It'll be interesting to see if there are major thematic questions that drive each chapter. Off the top of my head, I'm going to say, I'll bet that there is. But let's see how formally Crichton built this narrative in iterations. And perhaps, finally, do the quotes at the beginning of each iteration perhaps connect with the mystery that's addressed? That would be pretty convenient, but I don't know but i'll look into it (laughs) let's worry about that next time so thank you to my guest phil Hoare for joining us from australia it was very interesting to try and set up and coordinate a time (laughs) that was convenient in both canada and australia i'll tell you it was hard uh thankfully he is a night owl and uh, i appreciate it very very much and he was wonderful so glad to have him and i hope to have him back I also want to thank you for joining me. If you want to read along in the book, add some thoughts to what we've been discussing on the show or be a guest on the show, or chat with me about anything you like about Jurassic Park, you can do that by connecting with me. I'm at riansrogers at gmail.com. And if you would like to be a guest, right, we're, we're still just at the very beginning. We're not 100 pages in yet. You can pick up the book. You can get right in there and you catch up to us and you can join in and, and get ahead of the book. And if you want to be a guest, drop me a line. We can try and set something up. We can rehash, tear down, gush over, and chit-chat about any part of the book, also not the book, all you'd like. I talk with people about not the book all the time. Not that I don't want to, but, but I do. The Jurassic Park Cast is part of the Spring Chicken's banner of amateur intellectual properties, including the Spring Chicken's funny pages, Tomb of the Undead graphic novel, the Second Last graphic not Less, the Infantry, and the worst of them all, the King Street Changers. You can find links to all that baggage in the show notes if I visit you schickens.blogspot.com or finding us on Facebook at facebook.com slash springchickencapers or me I'm on my Twitter at Rogers Brian Ryan 22. Thank you for tuning into the Jurassic Park Podcast The Jurassic Park Podcast where we talk about the novel Jurassic Park Until next time I, I used to worry about what people would say, but then uh, nobody said anything <laughs> we